Hey everybody, how's it going? Thanks for joining me this afternoon. I'm Oren McIntyre. So I've been talking a lot about, a lot about democracy and I always kind of get very similar canned responses. And so I wanted to go on a little bit of a rant because there's a couple of different issues I run into over and over and over again when I try to discuss this subject and it gets very frustrating. So I'm hoping I can just kind of put everything out there put some of these myths to bed and we can kind of move forward with this, this discussion. So the first thing I always hear when I talk about democracy, what democracy is doing, how it's impacting things, the problems with it. The first thing you always hear from a lot of conservatives is, well, we're not a democracy. So this doesn't apply to us. We're a constitutional Republic. And look, I get it. I totally understand. I used to say this all the time. I'm very familiar with it. I used to believe this. This was my line of reasoning. I had the same response. So I, I'm not angry that people do this. I'm not surprised that people do this. I'm not confused about where it comes from. I totally get it. Again, th this is kind of where my reasoning went first. Whenever you run into any kind of substantive criticism of the system, just say, oh, no, this isn't the real thing. That's not really what we're have. We're not, we're not really a democracy. We happen to be a constitutional republic. People just get confused. So I want to clear that up first before we go any deeper. So first, are we a democracy? Are we a constitutional republic? Well, first, you need to kind of define your terms, because what I run into most of the time when I talk to people about this is they don't really know the difference. Like they don't really have an idea of what the difference could be. They just say, well, a, a constitutional republic is where you have representatives and a democracy is where you don't. It's like, well, OK. If that's the case, if that's your definition, then direct democracy is the only actual democracy. That's the only legitimate form of democracy and anything else is a different form of government. You could say that, but then you're just saying that democracy doesn't really exist, that you, you never really have democracy. And okay, I can kind of go along with that. I can kind of agree that no place anywhere actually has democracy, but then you're just saying democracy isn't a real word and, and that's not very useful. I think we all know what we mean when we're talking about democracy. Now, to be fair to people who kind of define it this way, so did James Madison. If you look at Federalist Papers number 10, you can see that he says, well, a democracy is where everybody kind of deliberates on this stuff. And a republic is where you have representatives who do it for you instead. And the republic just allows you to scale this up. So if that's your definition... Okay, but you're just saying that democracies just don't exist, and so nothing, none of this applies to you. I don't think that's very helpful. So I think people who are a little more honest are saying that usually a republic is a little closer to an aristocracy. The people, certain percentage of people have an input into who's going to run the show, right? You have representatives. Either way, you're saying representatives run the show. But in a republic, you're going to have a lot of barriers between kind of the mob, the democratic mob and the government. There's going to be many different uh, protections against kind of mass rule. And so that, that's going to be your, your difference between a democracy and a republic. Now, I think a lot of people understood this too. I mean, Benjamin Franklin said it's a republic if you can keep it. And so he kind of acknowledged that there's probably some way you could lose it. There's probably, and maybe he was thinking a monarchy. Maybe he's saying, oh, you, you could lose it to uh, authoritarianism. 
But obviously, you could also lose it to a more democratic appeal by opening things up, by allowing the mob more direct influence over the government. You could lose your republic that way. And so I, I think we need to understand that you know that this these barriers aren't permanent. Just because you write something down in the Constitution at one point, and at some point you were a representative republic, that doesn't mean you are in perpetuity. The Constitution, despite what many conservatives like to pretend, is not chiseled in stone somewhere. It gets changed and things morph over time. And so, yes, we probably did have a representative republic. I think that's probably saying you have a constitutional republic at the beginning. That's probably a reasonable assumption. You know, that, that, that's a good argument at that time that it did start that way. But that doesn't mean that's what we have now. It doesn't mean you keep it in perpetuity. And the founding fathers told you that in some of their most famous quotes. So if we had a constitutional republic, what do we have now? Like, what has changed? Well, I mean, the first thing you have to think about is how have the restrictions on democracy that were built into the Constitution changed over time? Are we more or less democratic than we were when the Constitution was written? Well, I think the answer is we're obviously much more democratic now. I mean, think about what has happened. We've vastly expanded the franchise through all kinds of different amendments. We've lowered the voting age. We've opened it up to all kinds of people. We've also done things like gotten rid of barriers to, say, uh, senatorial elections. You know, senators used to be chosen by the states. They used to be chosen by state governments. And now they're, they're chosen by election after the 17th Amendment. We've also changed who can even be uh, an American citizen through many different things, including birthright citizenship, assuring that anyone who comes to the United States and is born on American soil, even let's say if their parents came here illegally, through birthright citizenship, through that understanding of the 14th Amendment, is now a U.S. citizen and has a say in the vote. And so all of this has greatly expanded the power of the democratic aspect of the country. And a lot of people would say, oh, that's a good thing. Like a lot of people would celebrate many of those changes. But it's undeniable to say that these were removals of barriers between the government and the larger populace ruling, right? The, the, this is more direct input. You have more direct input at every one of these stages by expanding the franchise, by removing these barriers. You had a situation where you know, the president is far more elected by the people than he was before. You have a situation where senators are elected by the people when they weren't really before. And on top of that, you see a continued push for this, right? Every time you have an expansion of the franchise, it also is accompanied by an expansion of the government. It's hard to argue with the fact that the more that we have removed the barriers to democracy, the more the government has grown, not shrunk. And so the input of the people has actually not restricted the growth of government. It's done the opposite. The more people who have been allowed to speak about the government, who are allowed to have input on what the government's going to do and what they're going to, you know, what have a say in kind of where the government is going to spend its money and its resources have routinely expanded the role of the government. They have not contracted it. So this increase in democracy has gone along with an increase in the government every time. And that shouldn't be shocking to you because if you look 
at the work of somebody like you know Alexis de Tocqueville, who talked about democracy in America in his book, Democracy in America. One of the things that he warns about, about how you could lose it, is by saying, well, if, if the people figure out that they can vote themselves money, right, then the, they'll start choosing their own interests over that of kind of the wider group or the, or the, the nation in general. And who's more likely to vote themselves money? Well, people who need it. And so you kind of, and don't get me wrong, rich people do this all the time. I'm not, I'm really not saying, oh, well, that this is only the poor will ever vote themselves money. Uh, the, the rich certainly use the government on a regular basis to, to leverage this for their own uh, advantage. But we have to understand that as this ex franchise has expanded, has this democratic aspect of the government has expanded, the government itself has grown. And that, that's not a bug, that's a feature. That, that, that was a desired result. And if you're confused about whether or not that's a desired result, just look at the Democratic Party. Obviously, both parties are guilty of wanting to expand the government in their own ways. But the Democrats are just don't lie about it. They're blatant. That's their, their primary goal is to find a new program, a new spending program, a new a welfare program, a new way to hand out money to you know, their, uh, their constituents. They're, they don't hide the ball on that one. That's, that's an advantage they have with the Republicans. They don't have to pretend that, right? And so what are, their, what are their goals? What are their goals? Well, at every opportunity, they want to expand the franchise. They want to make sure more and more people vote. They've taken a lot of this idea that, oh, well, everyone needs to have a say. Like the key, what America is, is everyone having a say, having input into the system. And they've expanded that to kind of its natural conclusion, which is you don't even really need to be an American citizen, right? You, we, we should be figuring out a way to give everybody amnesty if they're not a citizen or, or allow non-citizens to vote. Kind of, it depends on which Democrat you're talking to as to what their solution is there. But very consistently, they want to open it up to absolutely anyone at any time. And they want to remove any barrier. You don't need a license. You don't need ID. You don't need to you know, uh, have a matching signed ballot. for your, you, know, you should be able to mail in your ballot. You could do it three weeks later. You don't even have to show up ever to a polling place. Uh, someone can collect it for you, right? Any opportunity to do this. Why? Well, because, well, I'll get to that in a second. I want to go to, but, but I want to talk a little more about the ways that the Democrats are trying to remove still any barriers to the democratic process, right? They want to get rid of the uh, the electoral college, right? That's a big thing. Oh, they can't, you know, Donald Trump and George Bush both won with the electoral college. Uh, they're recognizing that the power, the, the demographic power is shifting, that the, uh, the smaller states are losing uh, their demographic power and the larger states are obviously gaining it. That's what it means. Uh, but the, they re recognize that the, Electoral college is the main thing keeping Republicans in the game in a lot of ways. And so they want to get rid of that, saying that kind of a more direct democracy would be the right thing to do. Uh, they want to, in many ways, abolish the Senate, right? The Senate's already been more democratized through the 17th Amendment. But on top of that, they want to go ahead and say, oh, well, actually, what we want to do is we want to uh, get rid of this purport or, you know, make that proportional too. We don't want the Senate to be equal number of people. Uh, for each state, we want that to also be proportional because it's not fair. I, for some reason, we have to have everything has to be. Well, it's not for some reason. It's a specific reason because it will get them more power. We want to open that up so we can use kind of our demographic advantage uh, to to wield power through the Senate as well. We don't want it to be any kind of hindrance uh, on our power there. And then, of course, they're also now looking to alter the Supreme Court because the Supreme Court is kind of the last bastion of non-democratic governance. 
right? It's the one place where you don't vote on a Supreme Court justice. They just sit there for life, right? And then that they're there. But we're seeing that that is also being affected. They're also trying to change that because uh, they're saying we need to pack the court. The court is making bad decisions. They love the court back when it was doing everything they wanted, you know, and the, when it was the Warren court, when, you know, it was back in, in the, or the sixties or something, they, they would just win in all of these decisions. They loved it when it was uh, a Burgerfeld. They loved it when it was just forcing all of these decisions down and avoiding democracy then. But now uh, they're saying, Oh no, uh, the, now the Supreme court is a threat to m- democracy. We have to pack the court. And if we can't pack the court, we should go out and, you know, they, they want to go at- intimidate judges. It's very clear that that's their goal. The White House specifically told protesters to illegally gather on the on the lawns of Supreme Court justices to put pressure on them uh, during uh, the the Roe v. Wade overturning. And so this is something that they have focused on, right? The, destroying any one of these last barriers to democracy. Now you might say, but you know, it says somewhere in the Constitution that we are one, and and that's great. Okay, I agree with you that we used to be. 100% agree that we used to be a constitutional republic. But this is something that the left is correct about and the right doesn't get. Like the constitution is in many ways a living document. It will be interpreted, it will be updated formally through the amendment process, which has made us less of a constitutional republic, not more over time, as I've just laid out. The constitutional amendment process the one that is that you know you're supposed to follow is something that has made us more of a democracy not more of a constitutional republic over time that has been the consistent trend going forward but on top of this uh you know uh but on top of this these statutes are updated even not formally right they they are reinterpreted the uh they're manipulated over time if you have a population that no longer shares the moral visions and traditions of the people who wrote the constitution. They don't have the history. They don't have the background. They don't have the understanding. They don't have the same uh, vision of community and the future and the same care. Then the words on the paper don't really protect you. You know, you, you, you have to be, you have to have the political will to continue the traditions that are supposed to be captured on that page. And so the Constitution saying certain things about you being a republic doesn't matter if in practice everything you do actually makes you more and more of a democracy. Now, why do the Democrats want more and more of a democracy? Well, in one instance we already talked about, they want to expand government, when they want to expand power, right? But on top of that, they also want to uh, more of a democracy because they realize that actually we have transferred Right, we're not really a democracy in the sense of the people choose because the people never really choose. It turns out that the, one of the advantages to opening up democracy, having more and more democracy, is that actually the uh, power of social engineering increases, the power of the media increases, the power of academia increases, the power of the oligarchic class increases as you open up democracy because the people who are most able to influence popular opinion are those oligarchs, right? When you have popular sovereignty as your legitimating mechanism, then the best thing to do if you're an elite who wants to stay in power and all elites want to stay in power is manipulate the public. 
I mean, manufacturing consent. I'm not the first person to come up with this, right? Chomsky saw it from the other side, but he's not wrong about this particular aspect, right? You are in a situation where the people who control these levers of power want more and more popular input because they can control the popular input because they're the ones who have a constant ability because of their hegemonic control of these institutions, media, education, that kind of stuff. They are able to shape the awareness of the people. They're able to focus the attention of the people where they want. They're able to control the information that is delivered to them. And that allows them to manipulate the vote. And if that doesn't work at the end of the day, they'll just do what they did in 2020, right? Time Magazine wrote a story celebrating the fact that all these organizations came together to alter the way that voting worked, to alter the message to control every piece of information that could go out to voters so that they could work together to defeat Donald Trump. And so is that is that the will of the people? Is that democracy? I mean, in some sense, yes, right? Because that's the mechanism they're using. But it's not really the people who are in charge in that scenario, especially once we start getting to how votes get counted and that kind of thing. But you don't even have to make any accusations in that area. You can look at books like Rigged, uh, by Molly Hemingway, which do a great job of laying out all the out in front ways that the election was controlled by people like Mark Zuckerberg. You don't have to get into crazy speculation, even though I don't think a lot of that speculation is crazy. You don't have to get any any kind of dicey or spicy territory to say that the 2020 election was manipulated because the people who did it were very proud about it. And it's well documented, again, by people like Molly Hemingway. So we're seeing this scenario where whether you like it or not, we are in a democracy, right? We, that, that is what's happening. Now, why did that happen? Again, lots of natural incentives. I mean, one of the problems is the United States became an empire. And empires and representative republics, they don't scale very well. Eventually, you get so removed from... Uh, kind of the core voters, the core constituents, the core people you were supposed to represent, that you just don't care about them as much anymore. For many of these people, many of these people in the ruling class, it's much more advantageous to control, again, and to retain power, to just bring in new voters, since the old ones don't agree with them anymore, or to bribe voters in, you know, in kind of their interests. And that's kind of the problem we're at now, right? Because there, there's a asymmetry in our political situation, there, there's an asymmetry between our two parties. The Democrats do what works in a democracy, and the Republicans don't. The Democrats are not shy about what works in a democracy. They have constituents. In fact, they feel proud of telling you who their constituents are, right? Uh, we're for LGBT folks. We're for Latinos. Yeah, you know, we're we're for African Americans, and we're 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 going to get these communities the things that they need and they deserve. And then they go out and they secure that money, and they drop it on these people, right? Now, not all of it; they keep a lot of it. Don't get me wrong. There, you know, they, this is a, a patronage network where they pay themselves first. They take that graft, that money that they take from kind of Middle America, and when they redistribute it to their patrons, they keep a large amount of it. They make sure that they pay off their corporate donors with it. They make sure that they funnel it through the university systems and all their other networks, you know, uh, the different unions and unions and such. They make sure that their people get paid, their activists get paid so that they'll stay loyal to them and they keep a lot of it for themselves. But at the end of the day, 
They are buying votes because it works. That's what works in a democracy. When you no longer have a clear, unified interest in the country, when you have expanded too far to where people can actually kind of see each other as part of the same system, then it all just comes becomes about groups fighting inwardly for what they can get. Now, the Republicans do exactly the opposite, right? We're, we're the opposition. So that means that we don't no, we can't we can't take money and give it to our own people. We can't fight for the interests of our our groups that support us because that's not what we do. We're fighting against what the what the left does, what the Democrats do. Well, that's great. I mean, some of those principles I actually agree with, but they don't work in this form of government. The incentive structure is not on your side. And everyone understood that that's why so many founding fathers warned about us becoming an empire. Some founding fathers did want us to become an empire. I think it's pretty clear that there's a, there's a, a, a specific uh, kind of group inside our founding fathers that wanted us to become an empire. But many of our founding fathers warned against things like having a standing army because that encourages you to use it, to go invade other places and to expand in there. And once you do, then you know the interests of the areas you expand into, the foreign peoples that you bring in, even if you're conquering them, that's gonna that's gonna change the way that you do things. And this is a tale as old as time. This isn't some disease that's specific to America. When Rome had a standing army, when they acquired a standing army, uh, especially when they went through things like the Marian reforms, uh, where they became a more professional fighting force, it was no longer about uh, people who had enough money to buy their own equipment coming in instead uh, equipment and salaries were paid to the troops so instead of having a citizen army based on kind of your aristocratic class and your citizen class instead you had a professional army that was paid to constantly kind of be fighting and uh, they, they were more mercenary that changes the dynamic right and that's many people will point to that as one of the key turning points where the roman republic turns into the roman empire yeah julius caesar and the rise of octavian is usually marked as kind of like the final nail in that coffin, but that process is going on for a long time. Why? Well, when you got the standing army, you got to use it. Again, Rome was expanding for you know, a long time. Obviously, this isn't just the Marian reforms that kind of make Rome expand, but that's certainly a big step in that continuation. And th again, this is why so many founding fathers warned against this. But it's very clear today that you know the United States is a global empire at this point. You know, we we've expanded. You know, we have we have a uh, boundaries that go from sea to sea on top of that we got you know bases everywhere in the world and in places even when we don't have military presence our economic presence is dominating everything and that means there's a lot of interest everybody has some kind of interest in the united states because we're involved in everybody else's affairs and so they have to be involved in ours and that brings in a lot of foreign interests and it brings a lot of people who move here who want to advocate for their own interests and that means you have again the, that democratic impulse is what drives your politics, not one that is representative of kind of the core values of the people, the core traditions of the people that started this whole thing, right? That, that you can't continue those if you're constantly putting yourself in a position where you're bringing a lot of people in who are not going to be directly connected to those values. That That's just common sense. And so I, I guess here's my point. I hear a lot of people complain about basically where we're, we are now. They're like, oh, well, you know, why would people keep voting for 
the these Democrats or you know why, why will why won't they just be smarter? Why we need the electorate to be smarter? We need the electorate to choose better. The electorate doesn't know what's good for it, and we have to kind of elevate the electorate. And that's the wrong way to win in democratic politics. If you're lecturing your electorate, that's not helping you at all. That, that, that's not going to improve things. That's not the kind of system you're in. You're not really, because you don't have a shared vision of the good. You can't even begin to speak the same language to each other about what would be advantageous. And you, you can't make persuasive arguments on shared values to people who don't share your values. And you've kind of guaranteed that you have a population that doesn't and that you include as many of them as possible in your decision-making process. And again, the, the things that work are in controlling information, controlling people's understanding of the issues, and paying them off. Like that's what works in a democracy. There's a reason the democracies consistently devolve into oligarchies. And I think it's hard to pretend that we don't have that kind of government today. And so I think what a lot of people say, okay, Oren, that's great. And democracy, not good. We understand we're stuck in it. Okay. What do we do, right? Like, what's what's the road back? Because I, I don't want to be in, be here anymore. Understandable. So a lot of people will say, okay, well, the key is fixing the Constitution, right? We need a convention of the states. This is an idea that's very popular with a lot of constitutional conservatives. They say, we, we have a, a convention of the states. We hold it outside of the Washington, D.C., and then the Washington swamp can't get involved because you know, we're, we're in another state and the, it's the normal process that holds the, the, the whole thing captive isn't involved. And you can have your own new process where people can write, you know, they, they can, you can fix the, you know, the interstate commerce clause. You can fix holes in the 14th amendment. You can fix all these, you know, problems that we have in the constitution now, and then everything will be fine. There's a problem with that. When you, again, the, the problem isn't just what the words of the Constitution say. It's not like the Constitution had some bugs. And once you kind of figure those out, then you're fine. The Constitution is a perfectly fine document for governing the people who lived under it at the time. The problem is that we decided to fracture ourselves and expand too far. And we have too many competing interests. And so there's too many people interested in manipulating the language of the Constitution. I mean, you could fix the language of the Constitution, sure. But I mean, look at the Second Amendment. The Second Amendment is very clear about its intention. And yet, you know, it took us how long until we actually got a constitutional or a Supreme Court ruling that defends, you know, uh, you get you finally get the Heller ruling that defends the ability of an individual to own a firearm. And even then, still many areas, many Democratic areas just ignore that constitutional ruling to this day. And so the problem isn't just the words in the Constitution, because the Democrats can sit around and say, well, the Second Amendment doesn't matter. If liberals, progressives, the left can say, well, you know, that's not what that means. Well, you can do that to anything, right? It doesn't matter what you say. I mean, you, maybe fixing some of the words in the Constitution are good, but it's not the expansion of the Constitution. It's not the addition of, of constitutional amendments that's going to fix this problem. The problem is the way that we understand ourselves as a nation. And until we solve that problem, until we can return to a place where we have shared values and a shared understanding of the good, and we have a tradition that actually moves itself forward, that informs the way that we live our lives, the way we interact with each other, and the way that we want government to interact with us, none of this is going to get fixed. Now, 
I'll be honest, and you won't be surprised by this, I'm not very hopeful about that happening at a national level. I don't really think that at any point you're going to see uh, California start agreeing with Alabama. I don't really think you're going to see New York agree with Florida, except if you keep moving all of New York to Florida. And so the solution is probably going to be extreme federalism to the point of national divorce. Now, I've said this many times before. I don't think we're ever going to see like a actual secession of any of these states. I don't think you're really going to see, you know, a, a formal removal uh, kind of up front of these states from each other. But I think over time, there's a high degree of possibility that the incredibly incompetent system that we have now that can't keep planes in the sky, can't keep plane doors bolted on, uh, you know, can't keep the power on, eventually that system is not going to be able to control the individual states. They're just going to lose their capacity to do that. We're already seeing Greg Abbott in Texas possibly taking action. I'm very interested to see what happens there. I don't want to, I don't want to count my chickens first, but he has apparently removed the border patrol from Eagle Pass so that his national guard can enforce the actual boarding laws. Since it's clear that the federal government has no interest in defending the border. He said, I'm just going to do it. Now, this is only in one small area. It's, it's not going to fix the problem, but it's a step in the right direction. And if more actions are taken, like Greg Abbott's, if, if he actually does, if this isn't just some kind of you know uh, show move, if he's actually going to do this, if he's actually going to start enforcing the border, that's, that, th- those, are, those are real games, right? That, that's not fake politics anymore. That's not the fake GOP politics we're used to seeing. Again, I don't know if Abbott's going to really make good on this, but if he does, then more power to him, and I hope other people follow him. But that's the kind of stuff that could change the dynamic. That's the kind of stuff that could actually return you to a governable size where you might be able to reinstitute something of a constitutional republic. You could actually concentrate enough people in Texas or Florida or somewhere else where they share enough values, they share enough culture, they care, they share, share enough tradition, and they share enough moral vision where they could forge an identity together and then move forward with a constitutional republic or another form of government. Who knows? Maybe, you know, I'm with Joseph de Maestra, that every nation has a, has a natural form of government that kind of uh, works with the, the spirit of its people. And some might be a constitutional republic, but I don't think many are. I think uh, mo- most are probably monarchical in some way, or you know, uh, or uh, you know, uh, far far less democratic. We see this outside of the West, right? But you know, I think each people does have a natural sense of the way that they run things, and I'm not sure how that'll shake out. What I'm sure of now is that whether we like it or not, whether it was the intention of our founders or not, whether it's what Republicans want or not, what we have now is a democracy. It's very clear that we're ruled by oligarchs through a democratic process. And I don't like that. And you may not like that. But denying that doesn't help any of us. Just saying, well, it's a constitutional republic. Sorry, it's not a republic. You couldn't keep it. And so we have to ask now is what works in this scenario? What works in the situation we're in now? Maybe if we get power, we could change the scenario and make what works change we could change it to what we want but that's not the system we're in right now and we need to have a realistic understanding of the system we're in now if we're gonna have any chance of getting out of this all right guys that's my quick rant uh not not that quick but you know quick ish rant about uh democracy 
Uh, I'm going to go ahead and switch over. We've got some super chats over here. Let me check these out real quick. Kruber Weirdo says, have you tried democracy even harder, though? That does seem to be the general uh, kind of advice from Republicans, right? That you should democracy as hard as possible. If we could just democracy a little harder, uh, we'll figure this all out. Uh, I'm skeptical about that, but that does seem to be the refrain. Uh, Mint 20 says the Constitution matters exactly as much as the elite want it to. Yeah, well, and I'll say this. So, yes, that's true. Uh, but in many ways, uh, it, it's it's what the culture, what the people will let your leaders get away with, right? Leaders who need to stay loyal to the ideas and traditions of the people uh, have much less leeway than uh, leaders that are not bound by that. But you can't control that if you don't have people, right? If you don't have a people. If you don't have a people, then there's no way to control, there's no way to tie the elites to the values of that people. So that, that's kind of an essential thing, which is why, you know, Democrats are working as hard as they can to ensure that you don't have a cohesive culture in the United States, that you don't have cohesive traditions, moral visions in the United States, because that benefits them. It allows them to become rootless, uh, cosmopolitan globalists that don't have to be tied to any specific people or tradition. Uh, Joshua Beebe says the uh, the conservative case for for dropping the voting age from 16 to 12 service guarantees citizenship in the future. It's a long way down. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, the only the only problem with the service guarantee citizenship thing right now would, of course, be that the military is controlled by very woke people. But yeah, having some level of skin in the game is key, right? Having some kind of way to ensure that the people who are making decisions on behalf of your country are tied to the interests of those communities and the country that it impacts. And again, the way to do that is to tie the elites to a particular tradition, a particular people, a particular moral vision, and make sure that they're invested in that. If the elites are rootless, if the elites are cosmopolitan, if the elites are not tied to any particular idea of the good, then they don't have to do that. If they don't have to make any sacrifices when they make bad decisions, then they're going to make bad decisions. Uh, and, you know, service guaranteeing citizenship is certainly one of the ways to do that. But some mechanism by that has to be the case. Uh, Mint 20 says, but have you considered voting out the elite uses a smug face? Yes. Again, very uh, many people who do not understand how democracy operates will think that you can, you know, just kind of switch it out. What, what actually happens is the elite just switch out you, right? That, that, that We're seeing that headed pretty aggressively. Uh, Tatila says, I've been reading uh, Jefferson Davis's book and the Northern elite class really haven't changed much. The period before the Civil War was one long power grab by the North under the guise of democracy. I mean, obviously there's a lot of tensions and this is one of the problems about, you know, people reducing the Civil War to slavery. Now, Civil War was, you know, the slavery was a significant issue at different points in the civil war. It's, it's undeniable that that's the case, but when you reduce it to just that aspect, you don't understand the context in the history. It's very clear. I mean, why did you have slave States fighting on the side of the union? You know, why did Abraham Lincoln go out of his way to say it wasn't about slavery in many cases until it became advantageous to use that as a wedge against the Confederacy gaining any kind of uh, legitimacy among European powers. It's a lot more complicated, and I think you're right to point out that you know that uh, you could say the North and South, and that's true. In many ways, I think it's more the the uh, kind of the urban ruling class versus the rural 
uh, in many ways. Now, that's most, I think, uh, aggravated in the North and South. But if you look at Shays' Rebellion, Shays' Rebellion, which pretty much no one talks about, which led to the Constitution and the kind of the destruction of the original government of the United States, the Articles of Federation, that was a battle of the farmers and the bankers, right? The, the, the bankers and, uh, you know, the kind of kind of more the urban elite who wanted a shipping empire, you know, w- wanted to be able to collect taxes and centralize government. They wanted, they wanted to be able to pay off their debts. That, that was a big part of it, too. And so, uh, you know, they were taxing farmers, right? And then same thing with a lot of uh, kind of the changes that happened throughout uh, America. Many a times the uh, kind of rebellions that occurred that, again, we don't talk a lot, like the Whiskey Rebellion, a lot of the changes that occurred were in this tension between the rural versus the elite or the urban elites, um, you know, the, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, you know, that, that this is a big part of that contention. And so I think that, uh, that that's one of the tragedies of reducing the context of civil war to just slavery, even though slavery is a big part, is that you don't understand the larger ramifications, the tensions that existed and still exist to this day uh, in the United States. States. Uh, Kate J says the Constitution only has teeth so long as the religious values and interests of the very limited electorate and ruling elite were aligned. Yes, 100%, right? Again, yeah, we love we love to quote people like uh, you know uh, 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 John Adams who said that uh, the Constitution is only good for religious people, right? Doesn't work for any other. But we don't think about the implications of that. You need to have those interests uh, the interests align. The wider you make the electorate, the more you expand the franchise, the less likely the interests are to be aligned. The more likely you're going to have multiple interests that are going to buy for that. And many of you might say, well, or, and, you know, there's a lot of important interests that are added. Okay. That might be true, but what you're doing is making it more democratic. You're, you're no longer a constitutional Republic. You're, you're moving closer and closer to those things. You may like that change. That's okay. You can advocate for that change, but we just can't lie about what that does. And we also have a hard time not noticing that as that happens, as that expansion occurs, the leaders are less and less interested about kind of their the country's long-term interests and more and more interested in factionalism, more and more interested in the and more and more interested in their own aggrandizement because they can play different factions against each other or they can globalize, you know, they can expand rather than having to deal with a core interest of particular uh, uh, constituencies. Uh, let's see. Friend Lee says, can you explain the purpose of a system idea as it pertains to outcomes such as Wilkel pointed out? I don't think it's as clear as people are saying. Sure, yeah. So uh, I was uh, on Twitter and uh, one one guy had posted, uh, I don't know where it came from, but explaining that the purpose of the system is what it does. Uh, and I said, this is something I have to do a lot. Uh, I have to explain to conservatives that your education system isn't failing. They'll say, oh, we have a failing education system. It's not producing, uh, you know, people who are good at math. It's not producing people who are good at science. It's not producing people who can read uh, very well. It's not producing people who can write good papers. And the, uh, you know, the the thing is, oh well, it's failing. Well, no, it's not failing. It's good at what it's what it does. Your system now, at some point, your education system was designed to do those things. But what it's designed to do now is increase the power of the federal government and indoctrinate children in leftist ideology. And it's very good at that. The system isn't failing. It's for what it does now. It's been co-opted into this 
thing, right? Same thing is true, say, your border security, right? Under the Biden administration, the border security doesn't secure the border. It just lets everybody go. It walks them in, it hands them like a phone, and then it just lets them roam around the country. Or even better, it goes out of its way to fly people or bus people to places that the Democrats want to transform demographically for their own voting advantage. So what is that system for? Is it for border patrol? Is it actually patrolling the border? I mean, it says that, right? So th this is a problem for conservatives is they look at the name of the system and then they say, oh, well, that's what the system does. The Department of Education educates. The Border Patrol patrols the border. But that's not the case, right? That's not actually what those systems do. That may be have what they were designed to do originally. But if you want to understand what a system does, look at what it does. If you want to understand what a system's for, look at what it continues to do, right? Because if a, if a system didn't work over a long enough timeline, if it failed routinely at its intended purpose, somebody would fix it. Someone would take uh, would take steps to do that. If they're not doing that, then that means there's an incentive to not do that. And if it's doing the opposite, then that means there's an incentive for it to produce that result instead. So a lot of my time is spent explaining to conservatives, no, this system is, is selecting for something. Just because it has a specific name, just because you slapped something, a name on something, doesn't mean that's actually what it does. And so you need to be looking at what result it's intentionally and consistently producing to understand its real function, not just the name that's slapped on the side of the building. You're, that's the one of the problems for conservatives. They're like, well, I'll just reform this institution to do what it's supposed to do, except everything about that institution is now specifically altered to do something else. The FBI isn't there to stop crime at this point. It still stops some crime. But the FBI is very clearly, in addition to whatever else functions it performs, the FBI is very aggressively an organization created to punish right-wing voters right? To, to punish people like Trump supporters. That's its purpose. And just going like, well, it says the Bureau of Federal Investigation, so it must investigate crime. That's the only thing it could do. Well, no, actually, no. That's It's very clear that we don't investigate Antifa. In fact, the, the FBI director will specifically tell you and Antifa is just an idea, right? So if, that, if the job of the FBI was to investigate crime and Antifa are criminals, why aren't they investigating Antifa? Well, you could say, oh, the FBI is broken. Well, no, actually, the FBI is doing what it's intended to do now. Maybe not what it was intended to do when it started, but most certainly what it's intended to do now. So the purpose of this of the FBI, whatever it, its original purpose, its purpose now is to make a partisan uh, in is to make a partisan difference when it comes to law enforcement. Its purpose is to get rid of people, or you know, put people in jail, or prosecute people, or scare people who vote Republican. That, that's its purpose. It may do some other things. It, you know, it stops some important crime still, but, that, but that's a key part of its function now is it's a secret police force. It's a Praetorian guard for Joe Biden. Not really Joe Biden. He's not really running anything. He's a senile old man who can barely find his you know, door to go where he's going. It, you know, whoever's running the government, that's what they're for. They're there for protecting them. So th that's what I meant by that. That's what I was getting at. Locals got an agenda, so he was just angrily running off with something else. He wasn't even really addressing the point. He just wanted to be angry. Um, Super Joe's midlife crisis says, Oren, very simple message to repeat from now on. 
the uh what works for the whole uh the whole rightoid sphere wigs delinda est yeah we're we're getting rid of uh wig history for sure that is uh that is critical uh and then friendly says yes i understand those arguments but what about the argument of the systems are designed to imprison black people again yeah so that i i don't know uh you're again local is just getting angry um so uh you'll you'll have to ask him what he was trying to understand there he was misunderstanding the entire argument i think probably on purpose uh and so uh i mean he's a canadian he's canadian he's 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 kind of a leftist i, I don't know what to tell you he, he wouldn't probably describe himself as such but i mean he's playing he's playing those games for a reason i don't know what else to tell you all right, guys, so let's go ahead and wrap this up. I think that's all of the chats for today. Thank you, everybody, for coming by. It was great talking to you. If this is your first time on the channel, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe. Make sure you go ahead and turn on those notifications. I get a lot of people saying, hey, I don't know when the streams are coming on. You can, I know, YouTube, you got to do the notification thing. Otherwise, it doesn't really believe that you're subscribed. And of course, if you'd like to get these broadcasts as podcasts, make sure that you go ahead and subscribe to the Or McIntyre Show on your favorite podcast platform. When you do that, please go ahead and make sure to leave a rating or review. It really helps with the algorithm magic. Tell everybody about the show. Appreciate you guys spreading the word. And as always, I will talk to you next time.